Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello, Alan. Hey, Darren. It's the afternoon of Tuesday, the 17th of May today, and with Australia's federal election coming this Saturday, we thought we'd record a quick discussion of the role of foreign policy that's been played out over the past few weeks of the campaign and what we might learn from that debate and those events, regardless of who wins this weekend. So, Alan, it was perhaps with a little glee that we observed on our last episode, which was recorded one week into the campaign, that foreign policy was making front page headlines, initially caused by the security agreement signed between Solomon Islands and China. So my first question today is whether you've observed this trend continuing throughout the campaign. Has foreign policy remained prominent, perhaps in comparison to previous elections? There's been more foreign policy discussion than I expected, Darren, though I'm not sure how many people outside the listeners to this podcast would have noticed. But given that the government made clear from the beginning that it expected national security issues to be one of its strengths, that was upended by the Solomon's announcement. And the result of that was that we found ourselves in the middle of a much more interesting discussion about foreign policy and diplomacy, not just how tough we should be about China, but questions like, should Australia have known about the agreement? Could it have stopped it? What leverage does Australian aid, economic and security engagement in the South Pacific give us over those countries? What's the balance between our commitment to Australian interests and the sovereignty of even the small states around us? What were China and Solomon Islands trying to get out of the agreement and how did the rest of the region respond? So it was really useful, I thought, to get away from some of the top-level sloganeering about China's ambitions and our Pacific family and into some of the practical questions of Australian statecraft. The ALP didn't just criticise, it offered up for consideration a practical set of policy proposals for the Pacific too, and Southeast Asia got a look in late in the piece, both in the foreign policy debate, which we'll come back to, and in some of Penny Wong's statements. Now, as I suggested, I know that most Australian voters didn't share our interest and the fact that Anthony Albanese devoted 19 words of his campaign launch speech to national security and foreign affairs and Scott Morrison, only a few paragraphs longer, suggests that there was a firm consensus among the political operators on both sides that the undecided voters out there are still not going to shift position on these questions. And uh, I, I was looking through the Ipsos polling, which polls what people think is going to be important in the election, and defence ranked around number 10 and foreign policy didn't make an appearance. Yeah. Well, I would draw a distinction between longer term themes and tensions where we might hope, but certainly don't expect the election campaign to be an occasion for thoughtful debate. And then 
contrast that with real-time events that raise more immediate questions about the merits of existing policies. And that happens regardless of whether an election is around the corner. As you say, Alan, when we look at the leaders' campaign statements, we see less oxygen given to these longer-term themes. And I agree, that's both because they're not perceived as prominent in voters' minds, and also, I think, because there is largely a bipartisan consensus on these big questions. I would say to observers of Australian foreign policy then that this campaign in many ways probably reaffirms your models of Australia and the world. But then the real world intrudes and sometimes an event occurs like the Solomon Islands and China deal that sparked, as you noted, Alan, a more practical, grounded debate about what could and should have been done and what was possible. And yes, there's going to be some finger pointing there as well. But this would have happened, I would think, regardless of whether there was an election next weekend. However, the complication maybe is that elections also will see the use of specific campaign tactics that are based upon a political logic and that are trying to score political points. And foreign policy and defence policy is not immune to this. So I want to consider a couple of issues that have come up in the last few weeks in that vein. And we will begin, as you referred to, Alan, with a debate between Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and her opposition counterpart, Penny Wong, which happened at the National Press Club on Friday the 13th of May. I saw a nice piece on the news website, Crikey, observing that this was the first debate to feature two but indeed any female politicians, and that it was a very civil and constructive exchange. Did the debate reveal anything interesting to you, Alan? One thing it revealed was the point you've just made, Darren, that there's a broad bipartisan consensus on Australian foreign policy, and it's still in place and still revolves around the three pillars of support for the US alliance, engagement with the region around us in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, and commitment to the rules-based order. And we heard that from both the participants. But there were interesting differences in the way that Wong and Payne presented these issues. Wong began with an emphasis on Indigenous Australians and Labor's commitment to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and, and announced that it was Labor's intention to appoint a First Nations ambassador if it came to office. The role of that person was not quite clear. But in doing all this, she was clearly linking foreign policy into a Labor tradition of drawing on national identity as one of the themes of foreign policy. The Liberals do that too, of course, but they just draw on different aspects of of national identity. Senator Wong repeatedly emphasised the need to draw on all elements of state power in addressing our relationships with our neighbours. That's interesting because it clearly means a bigger role for foreign policy and for DFAT and a foreign minister with clout was the expression she, she used about herself. You certainly got the impression that she'd be a driver of policy and of bureaucratic rebalance and that she had more than the necessary gravitas for the job. She also referred to the need to avoid seeing and dealing with our neighbours only through the prism of competition with China, but in their own terms as well. Now, on her side, Senator Payne was basically playing defence. That was, I mean, she's the 
She's the current occupant of the position, so that's not surprising. Her key message for me was that, quote, Australia has not blinked in relation to pressure from China. But interesting, again, the way she projected this was far more subtle than some of her colleagues. So unlike much of the rest of the election campaign, it was actually a pretty reassuring event, I thought. Yeah, and that's really where I want to pick up, Alan. I, I don't have anything to add on the substance. I think your summary was excellent. But my main takeaway was to think back to our own criticism of this government's handling of the China bilateral relationship in recent years as mostly an issue with execution and tone rather than substance. And to me, this debate was a reminder of what could have been and what one might hope could be for Australian foreign policy. Even while there might be broad agreement and many find that bipartisanship itself a bit frustrating, there are substantive issues to discuss, criticisms that can be made, and I think most importantly that it's possible to conduct public discourse in a way that focuses on the issues. The problem, of course, is that such an approach does not make for news headlines, and it certainly is not going to cut through to voters in an election. And this is where I kind of wonder if I'm contradicting myself a bit in the premise of this episode. It's not clear that I should be happy that foreign policy is making election headlines if it just leads to more exaggeration and sensationalism, this debate accepted. And this is the tension. You can want more discussion, but getting your wish might actually make things worse. And this segues me into our second item, because that the very afternoon of that debate, the government announced that there had been a PRC surveillance ship that was being tracked off the coast of Western Australia, somewhat close to a naval facility. Defence Minister Peter Dutton labelled the action as an, quote, aggressive act, end quote. Though I assume and fervently hope he wasn't referring to actions that under international law are described as aggression, which are essentially an unprovoked attack or invasion. Prime Minister Morrison certainly didn't think so, describing the behaviour as unusual, but noting that the ship had not entered into Australia's waters. And this means it was acting lawfully under international law, just like the US and partner states would do with freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. Alan, I guess we shouldn't be surprised by the Defence Minister, but I am disappointed I should also observe that Dutton and his Labor counterpart, Brendan O'Connor, debated at the National Press Club the week prior. And I think that debate, to me, was most notable for Dutton saying, quote, if history has taught us anything, it is that when dictators are on the march, you can only preserve peace by preparing for war, end quote. Alan, I think just generally, how have you seen defence portfolio issues play out over the course of this election? Well, let me take on the Defence Minister before I begin. I don't think peace is preserved by preparing for war. It's preserved by a mixture of skillful diplomacy, alliance building, deterrence. All these things are needed. Of course, if deterrence fails, you have to be ready to fight a war and win. But even when dictators are on the march, if that's the case in Ukraine, the response demands a lot more than war preparation. And we're seeing that in the intense diplomacy around support for Ukraine at, at present. I noted last time that in their election speeches on defence, there was very broad agreement between Morrison 
and Albanese on the sort of issues like percentage of GDP going to defence, the importance of cyber, sovereign capabilities and so on. Labor's criticisms of the government have largely been about cost overruns in some of the key projects, which are indeed eye-watering, including, of course, the money we owe to the French for pulling out of, of, of that deal. I suppose if there's a, if I'm disappointed in something, it is that the next government is going to have to take really big decisions on questions like the nuclear submarine program, but there's been no real discussion during the campaign about the what's and where's and how much's of all of that. It's as if both sides have wanted to put off questions like Australia's role in building nuclear submarines, for example, until after the election. Maybe that's not a bad a bad thing, going back to the point you made before. But anyway, the big questions remain over the election horizon. Your initial response to Dutton, Alan, actually made me think of former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who has been doing a book tour in recent weeks. And I'd point listeners to a recent episode of the Little Red podcast, where he's interviewed by one of the podcast's hosts, Louisa Lim, my relation, uh, as a good example of the book tour. And in these discussions, Rudd has made the distinction between an operational strategy for defence and a declaratory strategy, especially when dealing with China. And he argues that the government, and especially you know, Peter Dutton is singled out for criticism here, has leaned too much into the declaratory. And I think there's a, as a theorist, there's some very useful um, substance there about the merits or the how you go about achieving deterrence and what deterrence needs to be paired with to be effective. So that's a really substantive and interesting line of critique. And I would have liked to have seen more discussion of this in the campaign, but it is what it is, I suppose. Let's finish our election discussion then by returning to the issue that kicked things off. Since we recorded the last episode, Solomon Islands Prime Minister Sogavari has been highly critical of Australia, accusing Canberra and its allies of trying to undermine his government and even criticising the Western response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And even more incredulously, I would say, speaking highly of China's treatment of Christians. Um, perhaps even more concerningly, he seemed to be drawing somewhat from the authoritarian playbook by accusing civil society groups within Solomon Islands of being manipulated by those outside powers, foreign countries. Just after we recorded our last episode, Prime Minister Morrison said that a Chinese military base on Solomon Islands would be a red line for Australia and the United States, but did not explain what would happen if it were crossed. Australia's Foreign Minister Maurice Payne would later take time out from the campaign to meet with her Solomon Islands counterpart, Jeremiah Manele, in Brisbane. And Manele would travel onto Fiji for further talks with officials as Solomon Islands looks to provide more insight and context and explain itself to the region. DFAT officials also held rare talks with Chinese counterparts at the mid-level and raised, quote, serious concerns about the new security deal. So, Alan, you said at the outset of the episode that a lot of interesting questions have been raised by this deal. How do you think we're doing overall? Yeah, look, the Morrison government was obviously caught short by the agreement, and you, that was clear from the ragged and internally contradictory responses we saw from the beginning over questions like, 
what the government knew and uh, when it knew it. Yes, we we had advance warning of this. No, we didn't. The first time I saw it was when the document was leaked. Whether this was a potential Cuba on our borders, as Barnaby Joyce insisted, or whether we should accept Prime Minister Sogavari's assurances that there would be no base and that Australia remained Solomon Islands' key partner. And you mentioned the red line, which may or may not have been what we all thought a red line uh, was, and other questions like whether we were losing our soft power advantage in the region because the government had closed down Radio Australia services. I don't know anyone who has dealt with Prime Minister Sogavari who would regard him as a tediously predictable person to work with. So I do not doubt the difficulties uh, involved here. But the question for Australia now is not whether we can get the agreement torn up. That won't happen at least any time soon. But whether we can ensure that it's not used in ways that are harmful to Australia's interests. Uh, that's entirely possible, and it's the work of diplomacy in Honiara and uh, elsewhere in the in the Pacific, and it's the work of ministers in Canberra as well as the High Commission staff in the Solomons. Uh, look, final point about the campaign, going back to what we were saying at the beginning, Darren, this may be wishful thinking on my part, but I reckon it's possible to detect in the community the stirring of a greater demand for a more balanced Australian statecraft with greater focus on foreign policy and diplomacy. Now, it's not just what Penny Wong has been saying. There's a surprisingly diverse range of groups out there from former defence and security leaders worried about climate change to proponents of a feminist foreign policy, from some of your colleagues who've labelled themselves as progressive realist academics to the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue, known as AP4D, which is seeking better integration of those skills. All of these are marshalling a voice and, and gathering weight to try to get Australia to implement a richer brand of statecraft. I, you know, as I said at the beginning, it may be wishful thinking, but I don't think so. I, I keep horizon scanning on these questions and I am seeing more of it at the moment than I have in the past, I think. Yeah, I share your cautious optimism, Alan. And I would just add, though, compounding the difficulties that you mentioned is just the fact that we're in an election campaign, which operated as a constraint. It not only in sort of inflamed the issue, but I think it constrained the government because our leaders couldn't spend much time engaging with it directly through travel to the region, for example, but also because they are forced by media attention and indeed the sort of general nature of election debates to channel their statements first and foremost through election logics. And so we're not going to come up with any major solutions during campaign period. Before we wrap up, Alan, I feel compelled to draw our listeners' attention to a series of articles written by Peter Harcher um, of the Sydney Morning Herald this past weekend on AUKUS. Harcher describes a meeting, and if I understand him correctly, between just three people, Australia's Andrew Shearer, who heads up the Office of National Intelligence, your old job, Alan, 
and two Biden administration officials, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and the National Security Council's Indo-Pacific Coordinator, Kurt Campbell. So I can only assume that Harcher got his information from one of these three individuals, but either way, the main thrust of the reporting was that President Biden had insisted to the Australian side that AUKUS receive bipartisan support here, but that the coalition government had kept Labor in the dark until just prior to the announcement. And there's also what seems to be a direct quote in one of the articles from Australia's ambassador, Arthur Sinodinus, to the United States, I, I mean. So, Alan, while I appreciate this all might be a little inside the Canberra bubble, as our Prime Minister likes to say, the process behind this story is quite surprising to me. I mean, Harcher has Campbell on the record for parts of these articles, but then separately he has unnamed sources describing word for word, it seems, what was said by Andrew Shearer in some of these meetings, or in this meeting in particular. That's, that, that, that's what I infer from the use of quotation marks in the piece. So what do you think is going on here? And substantively, what inferences should we draw about Australia, the US and AUKUS into the future? You asked me a couple of days ago when this first came out, Darren, who I thought had leaked it. Um, now, I've got no idea, but I, uh, since you asked me, I've, I've thought to myself that this surely, don't you agree, it's fertile territory for a five-part spin-off podcast, which you and I could do and then sell to Netflix for a, uh, for a dramatised version. And, and then retire, Alan, is that the plan? Then, then retire. Just, just uh, think about who you want to play, uh, Darren Lim. <laughs> Look, there's a famous line from the TV show Yes Minister, in which Sir Humphrey Appleby notes wryly that the ship of state is the only ship that leaks from the top. I can't see the article serving the purposes of any of the key Australians. So my guess is that we look to Washington, but who knows. It's interesting and reassuring that the US side wanted bipartisan support because in a possible project like this, you're looking at decades of joint activity. Uh, Morrison was quoted in the Financial Review this morning as saying, I'm quoting him, when the opposition needed to be informed, then they were. I mean, you've got the deputy leader of the Labor Party who would have been sitting in such a briefing who had frequent flyer points for visiting the Chinese embassy in Australia. AUKUS is a groundbreaking agreement, and I was not going to risk that on the Labor Party. So, end quote, well, that really doesn't have much of a bipartisan tone about it, does it? And it also links in to another point that came up during the week, which was the reporting that Deputy Labor leader Miles had shock and horror, and actually visited Chinese diplomats on a number of occasions. I mean, you can only roll your eyes at that. Yeah, Alan, I'm very curious to know when Harcher interviewed Campbell, because if it was more than a few months ago, I wonder whether Campbell would have imagined that these stories would drop the week prior to a national election, because it's not really a good look for the US, given how much national security and AUKUS have been so central to the government's message and so contentious throughout the campaign. I agree with you, Alan. It's obviously correct for the Biden administration to insist upon bipartisan support. And it's great because it sort of signals this long-term recognition that it's really binding the two or the three parties together. And so 
to me, what this reveals, I think, is a political miscalculation by the Morrison government because I imagine they've kept Labor in the dark in part to maximise the domestic political benefits um, of the agreement, but in so doing crossed a line that saw the White House compelled to put its version on the record. And so then I can imagine, and look, I'm only guessing here, that some of the juiciest quotes from the articles were actually from the Australian side, sanctioned by the Prime Minister's office, as a way of trying to balance the narrative that came out of the White House, which was simply that we wanted a bipartisan agreement and that the way Harcher might have been framing the article in, in draft form was to be highly critical of the Australian government for uh, for keeping the opposition in the dark. And so you see this sort of response with some quotes to try to balance things out to make the argument that, well, what we did wasn't really a problem. So that's, that's my guess. Um, you know, of course, we'd all like national security policymaking to be free of domestic political dynamics, but in the real world, that's rarely going to be the case. The lesson I draw from this is that even when you are dealing with allies, the pursuit of political gain is inherently risky and sometimes can backfire, as it might have done here. Uh, we're going down the rabbit hole here, Darren. <laughs> well, wait for the spin-off series. Let's move from inside the camera bubble into our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? For an Australian of my generation, the, the framework in which I was taught history was overwhelmingly Western. So I had a sense of progress that moved from your Greeks to your Romans to your Dark Ages to your Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution and so on. But a number of years ago, I realised that I didn't have anything like that broad framework in mind when I was thinking about China. So I set out to try and fill some of the gaps with books that might help. There was no single one that I came across, but this is clearly important because if we're to have any hope of dealing effectively with China, then understanding its history from its own perspective is obviously foundational background. So I was really pleased to come across Linda Javen's new The Shortest History of China. As the name implies, this is short, but it's nevertheless comprehensive uh, history and really usefully restores both the role of women and effectively links the past with contemporary challenges, which is sometimes hard to do in a history book. So it's a very good companion piece to a lecture in the Rethinking China series, which is now available on YouTube and was given by Yun Zhang, who's our new AAA China Matters fellow. Yun was a former public servant in PM&C, and she speaks really eloquently about China and the experience of being a Chinese Australian. And uh, she also recommends the Linda Javen book. So both the book and the lecture are worth following up. Great. Well, we've rightly been focused on Australia in recent weeks, but both the United States and China are experiencing major internal challenges that reveal structural fragilities. And I want to recommend two recent podcast episodes that I think speak to each. On the US side, we have the leak of a purported majority Supreme Court decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade, which guaranteed a degree of abortion rights across the entire United States when it was decided in the early 1970s. If this decision proceeds, 
individual states in the US will be able to outlaw abortion entirely. And then there are fears that the court's conservative majority will target other rights next. So the podcast episode is the New York Times' Ezra Klein interviewing Patrick Deneen, who comes from the post-liberal right, and the discussions about what that movement intellectually wants and, and how it would make it happen. And while it was recorded before the Roe News came out, it's a really excellent discussion about the intellectual foundations of this right-wing backlash to liberalism. On the Chinese side, we're witnessing a truly devastating set of COVID-19 lockdowns in Shanghai and across the country. Now, if once upon a time China's pandemic policy could have been held up as a success story, that is certainly no longer true. So the episode here is Jude Blanchett's Pekingology podcast interview with Sui-Shung Zhao on how Xi Jinping has centralized power in foreign and security policy in China and why that's so problematic and is creating these fragilities in the Chinese system. Okay, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Annabelle Howard for audio editing today and thanks also to Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We will talk to you after the election.